Welcome to Future Directions, a podcast about research. This episode focuses on the field of behavioral genetics, which is a field that can be controversial at times, especially with new technologies becoming available to manipulate our genome. I spoke with Dr. Rohan Palmer, and I learned a lot, so I hope you do too. Also, since today is Thanksgiving in the United States, I'd like to just say how grateful I am for everyone out there making a contribution to science and helping us make informed, evidence-based decisions in our daily lives. Okay, enjoy the episode. Well, welcome, Dr. Palmer. Thanks so much for being here. Pleasure to be here. I have so many questions about this field, but before that, I want to start at the beginning of your career. So you got a PhD at the Institute for Behavioral Genetics at the University of Colorado Boulder, and now you're an assistant professor at the psych department in Emory. And so can you just quickly like summarize what the field of behavioral genetics is all about? So behavioral genetics as a field really centers on understanding the intersection of nature and nurture using a variety of uh, approaches. I think the one that people most think about when they think of behavioral genetics is sort of work related to relationship between individuals in a family. So you think back to early researchers like Ronald Fisher looking at Mendelian inheritance in people, which I think at the time really meshed in really well with work that was coming out of like Gregor Mendel. So we think about that, but how do we put that into real life? And so much of the field sort of looks at the intersection between family members. And so over the years, we've studied lots of twins and more and more so, more recently, extended pedigrees and families. And to date, since you know the emergence of the whole genome project, that's sort of evolved into not just studying members of a family, but also whole populations of people, whether they might be you know, people who meet some diagnostic criteria for a disease and a group of matched control individuals, or whole populations like country like Iceland or you know Finland, where we have large population registries that are set up, and people are you know describing what their lives are like, and you have mothers, fathers, grandmothers, great aunts, and you're able to trace that lineage and make approximations about you know, how genetically similar you are to your your great aunt or your aunt or uncle versus your mother and your father, and how that might explain the similarity between you and them with respect to some trait like height or you know weight or even a, a psychological trait like your personality. Fun. <laughs> and that's one of the things that I love about the field is that there's, there's a degree of complexity in, in what, what we're studying that still requires us to continue to research it. Mm-hmm. Over time, and I think some, I think there, you know, there's some people out there who think, "Oh, we've known these things for a while." Yes, it's heritable, but as we accumulate more data, better quality data, it's the case that we're able to ask more interesting questions. Even if it's the same question we asked before, dive a little bit deeper. And I think a really good example of that is like personality. As we think about personality as a trait that is is a part of you and relatively very stable over the course of your life. And, and the challenge there is what it takes to study that kind of fine grain trait in a person, right? And so I'll give you an idea. Like some personality inventories, I meaning assessments, are hundreds of questions. See, you're shaking your head. For those of you who can't hear, can see us in the room. Right? You're shaking your head thinking, oh my gosh, that's 400 questions. For me as a researcher, thinking about that, I have to achieve balance, because there's participant burden. And so there are certainly, I think there are limitations to how we conduct research For sure. that impact how we've, the things that, we, what we're able to do as a field or any field in science. 
is able to do. But that's also the beauty of it, that our field has evolved. This idea that it's a combination of genes and your environment affecting behavior, I'm guessing it must have changed over the history of behavioral genetics, right? So at one point we might have thought it was more about the environment and at one point we might think it's more about genes. Where do we stand now and how do we keep changing this idea? It's a good question. So I think one of the things we've always recognized the field is that we need we always need to have both components in any model. So there's there's the genetic contribution to a given behavior there's the environmental contribution, and then there's the relationship between the two of them. It can be an interaction. It could be a correlation of some sort. And so I think we're, we're always recognizing that there can be variability for over time. And so what do I mean by that? So let's take a trait like alcohol use. Right? Alcohol use is essentially, uh, let's say, modest to moderately heritable. It's about 20 to 30% in the population because one can argue that, well, use is somewhat ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. depends on when you're talking about it. So if we said we're going to look at the heritability of alcohol use amongst college students, for example, in their third year of college, <laughs> well, what are the expectations of individuals going into college? There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a sort of general societal expectation that you go into college and that you're probably going to end up using substances. But what happens if you were to go to a college that is a dry campus, right? So one of the interesting things that here at Emory, we actually have a dry campus at our Oxford campus. That doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't students who are not exposed, right? That's that, right. that's just the norm. It doesn't happen on campus, but in that, if you were to go out and ask them, have you ever been exposed, you're going to get individuals in both places. Now, if you were to estimate that population statistic, the heritability in in either the Atlanta campus or the Oxford campus, because there's a difference in the expectations, that's going to affect the range of behavior that one can manifest. So then, right, it could be the case that you might ex- might estimate the population genetic contribution to be larger in the Oxford campus because there's a more restricted range in their environment. And so individuals, for example, who might engage in that behavior might be the ones that are more extreme or more at risk mm-hmm. So the genetic load essentially might appear to be greater. It doesn't mean it's not there in the other population. Right. It's just that there isn't much of a restriction in the environment. And so this brings us to this other question is, what if we're able to arm people with information hmm. in a meaningful way, in a way that doesn't necessarily induce anxiety? So I think there are certainly some form of traits where people have control over the outcome, others where you don't. And right now, it's, it's really an ethical debate on whether or not we should be releasing genomic information when one doesn't really know how to interpret it. So is that kind of the main motivation for this type of study where you identify risk factors in people and then you are able to prepare them for a better life or give them tools of how to deal with this risk that they might have? Yeah, I think ultimately what we want to be able to do is to create an environment that is much better informed, right? We want to inform clinicians or physicians with as much data as they can so that they can be thinking about what a person's risk might be. And I think it's the case that individuals are already doing this. So we have a grant right now in my lab that is focused on understanding risk for substance use behaviors. And most of the time when I come into contact with people that send me emails and they're inquiring about genomic and how it plays into substance addiction, it's school teachers, or its parents who's lost loved ones to alcohol or you know 
opioids, and they recognize the history of addiction in their families and that they themselves might be predisposed and that they've taken actions to try to avoid that. As individuals, we understand the familial nature of of different behaviors or traits, which is what, you know, twin studies have been indicating for years, but people recognize those things. But on the population level, we don't have really metrics that help you to recognize that when you don't have that kind of background. So what we recognize is that family history is by far best indicator for most things. But what happens when you don't know your family history? And so what we've been working towards is developing a risk index that's based on this measure we call kinship between individuals, because ultimately we're all related in some way, shape or form. And We might not be related in terms of we're all coming from the same lineage, but we're related in terms of the things we share by state, meaning that we're all mammals, we're all homo sapiens, we all, you know, share 99% for DNA, okay, and then there's one thing that's different that we're measuring as sort of variation, we still share those things in common, some of which we might share in common that predisposes us to the same disease or trait. And so what we've been working towards is in identifying what the common set of factors vulnerability factors might be, and then building an index that we can gas pass on to clinicians so that they can take that information as one more piece of evidence. I think ultimately what we're trying to achieve is is beginning to arm people so they can make better informed decisions. We can begin to think about, well, can we come up with targeted treatment modalities? Mm -hmm. And so in essence, some of these things already exist in terms of how we approach clinical treatment. But in the case that in the case of individuals who might need more more targeted interventions or pharmaceutical type interventions, genomics can play a role in that. For So for example, think about the role of pharmacogenetics and looking at how response to treatment can vary between individuals. I want to talk about your lab. Yeah. What are the main techniques that you use in your lab for data collection or even data analysis? For our genomic studies, we are essentially starting up partnerships with individuals in across different countries our latest one that we're working on now is with Australia, because they're building their own biobank. I was in Finland last month working on the Finnish uh, biobank registry. So we use a lot of large population registries, mostly because the the nature of the genetic effects that we're trying to capture are very, very small. And so we need sample sizes upwards of 50, 100,000 individuals. In my lab, we tend to focus on the aggregate effect of loci, mostly because we're working on what I mentioned earlier, which is related to sort of the kinship between individuals. That isn't to say that we're not interested in identifying a gene that's important. It's in as much as how I think we can leverage this information to help individuals. So lots of possibilities there for the kind of work one wants to do. This right. is a challenging field. It's a, yeah, when you start thinking <laughs> That's about That's what makes elements. it cool. It's what makes it really cool. And what makes it really cool even further is when you go to a conference and you get to see all the people who are doing cell bio work, neuroscience work, population genetics work, and then you find sort of that one, that one symposium where there are a couple of researchers who are trying <laughs> to put it all together. And you're like, wow. That's so cool. Yeah. And so one of the things we started most recently is the MapMe project, which we piloted last year here at Emory. And so that study looks at the development of different behaviors over the course of college, which is a transition period for most individuals. Mm -hmm. And so our goal really is to understand how do college students navigate this particular environment? And in addition to that, how, how is it that, you know, they participate 
in studies like this. And so one of the things we've been, we're, we're, one of the questions we're also interested in is, are college students interested in being involved in biobank type studies? Mm, I hope so. Well, I think part of it is understanding what that means and, of course, how much control they have. I think one of the things that we've seen more in the more public domain is that people don't necessarily always have control over their genomic information once they've shared it with an organization. Uh, and so, I mean, there have been a few court cases where, you know, you've shared your DNA and other people might sell it or, you know, use it mm-hmm. in some other shape or form that's not mandated. Yeah, that seems to be a scare. For that, is, that is a very, field. that is a reasonable fair to mm-hmm. have, yes. And so one of the things that we're working on in our project is to educate the community of students. So what's really important to me is that if we want a culture in our society where for people of different ethnicities are participating in research, then we actually need to do a better job educating them. And it's not the case that people don't have access to education anymore. I think it's the case that we don't necessarily introduce them enough to to science while they're in this type of environment, in, in science in a way that they're really interested in, that really sort of sings to them. I completely agree, and I find that that is a trend in all fields of research, yes. where it's hard for people who aren't immersed in it to understand the concepts and the terms, and so I feel like sometimes we just need to simplify things for the common population to understand it because at the end of the day research affects everyone so everyone should be able to understand it correct it's you think about it long term why is it we don't have a a society here where individuals want to be part of shaping the research environment and we don't incentivize them to do that one of the things i learned while i was in finland is that you know they have a national registry of course you can choose to participate in studies at any time but there are incentives for you to do that I was fascinated to hear that you get a discount <laughs> when you go into the store. It's like, you're, yeah, you participate in a research study? That's so cool. And you give them a number and you save money. Wow. They know how to do it. And so I've heard a lot from this field that the genetic information that we're currently using to link with certain disorders or behaviors come from a very specific group of people, whether that be specific ethnicities or social economic backgrounds. So is this true? And are we doing something about this to try and get a more diverse gene population? Yes, it's a great question. So a few years ago, we actually, myself and Janae Niederheiser, you know, co-led a symposium at the Behavioral Genetics Association on diversity in the types of studies that are being conducted in the field of behavioral genetics. And one of the things we recognized that there wasn't a lot of it and we tried to bring in as many researchers who like we could who could present on that. You know, for the most part, it's about 60 to 80% of studies that have been done largely focus on Caucasian populations. But interestingly, when we look at the demographics as well of research studies in general, they're in the States, they're largely Caucasian populations. Most studies are largely done in westernized countries that are primarily Caucasians. So there's there's essentially been there's a, a sort of a bias. But it's also mm-hmm. a bias where, where, where the funding comes from. Right? That isn't to say that there aren't lots of organizations that fund studies in other countries. So what's been happening that I think has really been driven that number to be more balanced, although we still need greater representation of countries like Africa, is that Asia has increased the, the amount of genome-wide association studies that are being conducted there. And so that has actually driven the number down from about 80% down to like you know, closer to the 60s and mm-hmm. so on. 
Where do you envision this field going in the near future, in the next like 10 years, let's say? Yeah, I think one of the biggest achievements that we are holding up right now in the field of behavior or you know, quantitative and statistical genetics is the success of genome-wide association studies. Uh, because initially, it was oversold. I can say personally, as a, as a graduate student, I did not jump on that bandwagon. As a postdoc, as I began to take advantage of new methods that were coming out, I've started to utilize it a lot more because I think it's a lot. It's become more sophisticated in terms of its approach to analyzing large sets of genomic variants, not individual loci. And so it begins to approximate genetic contribution of the whole genome to a particular behavior. And now what we're talking about is sort of the multivariate genome, meaning how your genetics influence different behaviors altogether and how those different behaviors can have different genetic profiles all influencing each other. Hmm. That's an area I think we're moving into now. In the case where there there are traits that are multi-polygenic, multi-trait polygenic, we are trying to really begin to understand what that means. So I think we're going to increasingly begin to see more functional studies Hmm. trying to understand what tissues are relevant for this trait of interest. Yes, you might think, oh, yes, brain, if it's psychological. But what part of brain? What's the temporal specificity? How am I, what's going to be the best design for me to mm-hmm. go ahead and do that? And I think you know, students that are in the field of behavioral neuroscience should be really excited. For but, sure. You know, especially if you're, you know, you're working in animal modeling, you incorporate genomics into what you're doing, then you begin to incorporate the different types of models and behavioral assays using technologies mm-hmm. like CRISPR, where you're able to modify those, those given animals. Yes, yeah, so I actually have a question about that. Would it be a possibility where once we identify certain genes or certain set of genes that are linked to specific behaviors, and of course we would have to be really sure that they are linked to this behavior, once we do that, then I worry that it might be a risk where now that we can edit our genome apparently, Mm -hmm. where we specifically select not to have these genes so that then this behavior will, through evolution, it will disappear eventually and how that might affect natural selection because it's not natural. Yeah. So I think it's a great question. And (laughs) (laughs) the issue of, you know, changing the one's the pop- a population's variation in genetic frequency is troublesome because we don't, we were only, for the most part, only studied these traits using an agnostic approach. And so ultimately, what one, what's happening now, if you look at some of these repositories, is we're building libraries of genetic correlations. And what we need to go now is figuring out how best to correct those correlations for them to be more representative of the true relationship uh, between our DNA variants and certain traits. More studies are needed or more sophisticated models need to be conducted in many of these data that already exists. And of course, the barrier there then is how do we begin to share all that data? And so coming back to the issue of fixation, well, what we've seen already happening in certain countries is that because they don't have much, they don't have much migration into their countries is that they have more fixation at certain alleles, and which means that diseases that are, tend to be more rare are increasing in frequency. The concern here is that you have, we might actually be protecting ourselves by changing different variants in the future, but we don't know what else we might be predisposing ourselves in the possible futures that we don't know exist. Right. And so it's, it's better to have more variability because then we can actually account or adapt to that variable, adapt to that situation. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope 
that if other people might be listening to this podcast who might be in a position <laughs> to actually do something or affect policy, take that into consideration. Are we enacting laws like, you know, do we allow individuals to start editing editing genomes? That's a, that is a very controversial issue because we don't know what the consequences are downstream. Yeah, and like in theory, yeah, it would be great to find specific genes that would that are associated with, let's say, Alzheimer's and be able to remove that from someone's genome. But then we don't know how that gene might have interacted with other genes for other traits or, like you said, variability is still important in a population. There are certainly some genes and some variants that clearly have a particular role in a particular tissue. And this is why there are studies that are being done at all levels in terms of transcriptomics, proteomics, right, to understand you know where where what are the different tissue and cell tissues and cell types that these genes play a role in because your genes the gene for example your dna exists in every cell in your body but it doesn't play a role in every cell in your right. body and so we have to type that for all the cells and understand what does a profile look like for for the for, for what it means to be human that needs to be well established before we begin to actually think about doing any kinds of modifications. Okay, so I guess we can end with this. <laughs> what advice would you give for a future scientist? So my advice would be, one, to not shy away from math. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to come back to that. I, I think <laughs> what needs to be recognized there is that I'm not telling you to go out and get a, get a double degree. It's, it's developing the wherewithal to, to be flexible so in, so that you can actually explore into those realms. If you're really interested in going into to research, having the wherewithal to be able to navigate you know, computer programming will really help propel you very forward. You, know, you can then become, it makes it easier for you to sort of jump different areas or navigate two different areas of your field. You, you become, you're not just the person who's making developing an assay and testing it in a lab, but you're also able to think about the theoretic the theory and how best how best to model that particular theory mm-hmm. uh, you know from a, from a statistical or computational point of view. Yeah, I agree. I've realized this past year how much computation is involved in research and just how important it is to have some knowledge on coding and mathematical models and all that. Yes, yeah, I you know I advise students to you know, explore different field, explore the computational sciences, and to get research experience where you can get it, mm-hmm. whether if it's in a lab, if you can, mm-hmm. right? And so just becoming, getting involved. People talk about having those sort of sharp elbows. Yes, that's definitely one strategy that you can take. So Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Palmer. I really learned a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to be here. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone you think would be interested. Well, share it even if you don't think they'd be interested, because you never know. Follow Future Directions on Instagram and Twitter, and let me know what you think. Let's create a community of forward thinkers. See you next time.